Welcome to Worldview, a foreign affairs podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Chris Dooley. A power struggle at 10 Downing Street. Top advisors walking out or forced out. A damaging gaffe by the Prime Minister to do with Scotland. A government reset promised less than a year after it won an election with a huge majority. All while the opposition party tears itself apart over the status of the man who led it into that election. It has been an eventful week in British politics and on the line now to talk about it is our London editor Dennis Staunton. Dennis, that power struggle at 10 Downing Street already seems a long time ago, but the repercussions continue, so we might start there. The story broke on Wednesday night last week with news that Lee Kane, a Downing Street advisor, had resigned amid bitter infighting in the Prime Minister's office. And it culminated a few days later with the sight of Dominic Cummings, Boris Johnson's top advisor, leaving 10 Downing Street by the front door with his things in a box. What happened? What happened uh, in the simplest terms was that there was a dispute over appointments, over whether to appoint Lee Kane, who had been the Director of Communications, uh, Chief of Staff. And uh, it appears that Boris Johnson kind of suggested that maybe he should take that job and then he withdrew the offer. And then the other uh, power struggle in a way was about the appointment of Allegra Stratton, a former BBC, ITV and Guardian journalist who has been uh, Director of Communications for the Chancellor Rishi Sunak until now, uh, appointing her as uh, the Prime Minister's press secretary and giving her the role of, uh, of fronting some televised daily press conferences from next year or possibly even sooner. And so there was a power struggle, as you say, between this faction uh, led by Dominic Cummings, these veterans from the Vote Leave campaign who had uh, insisted on really uh, running the Downing Street operation. Dominic Cummings, when he arrived in, didn't want to take the job of chief of staff, but he wanted to have complete control and he didn't want anybody to be above him. And this created a bit of a problem for Boris Johnson because, uh, you know, uh, although Cummings wanted to be able to call the shots, he didn't actually want to do the day-to-day running of Downing Street. And so that created problems. Lee Kane stepped in to some extent to fill, to fill that role. But there was some anxiety, especially as the coronavirus crisis continued, that really this kind of very uh, combative kind of mess messaging and uh, and way of running the system wasn't working. It was alienating Conservative MPs, but it was also alienating the public. And so you saw Boris Johnson, who had been one of the most popular politicians in the country, suddenly become very unpopular. And then a group within Downing Street, which included Boris Johnson's fiancée, Carrie Simons, uh, who was a former uh, Conservative uh, press officer and who's got who's a very well-connected person politically herself. She and Allegra Stratton and some others uh, essentially said that uh, he should have, uh, you know, he should move in a different direction. And they also wanted a change in what they felt was uh, a very macho culture within Downing Street. And so in the end, uh, after agonising and going to and fro, what happened was, as you say, that uh, Lee Kane and uh, Dominic Cummings left Downing Street last week. Are Cummings and Kane the only two to have gone? Because didn't Dominic Cummings bring with him to Downing Street a number of people who had worked with him on the, the Vote Leave campaign and the Brexit referendum? Yeah, there are a few of those. One of them uh, is Oliver Lewis, who's the main Brexit expert, uh, as they call him, in uh, in Downing Street. And uh, he's working with uh, David Frost 
on the negotiations with the European Union. There were some rumours that one or both of them might go. They haven't gone. They're still there. And there are various other figures uh, that Dominic Cummings brought in. None of them have so far gone, but uh, you know, there's, there's going to be some kind of shake-up. Uh, at the moment, Eddie Lister, who's uh, an old uh, comrade of uh, Boris Johnson's from his days as London mayor, he's uh, acting interim chief of staff, but there will be an appointment of a chief of staff that person is going, to, is going to be a very important appointment. And that uh, person will probably start to shake things up. And then what we're also expecting is a cabinet reshuffle uh, again within the next few weeks, possibly uh, early in the new year. And what does all this mean, Dennis, for the future direction of Boris Johnson's government? Will we see a change? I think we will see a change. The, uh, I, I mean, the first change is going to be in messaging. And so, uh, for example, Allegra Stratton came on the, uh, the, the lobby briefing call to the parliamentary lobby uh, yesterday, and she, uh, she, she introduced a number of changes right away. First of all, we're going to be able to name her. Generally speaking, you just refer to uh, either Downing Street sources or the Prime Minister's spokesman or a Downing Street spokesman. And in this case, from now on, you'll be able to uh, we'll be able to call her by name, and she also was very, very uh, uh, clear that despite all of the uh, you know the feuds that Downing Street has had with the press over the last year or so, where they've been boycotting various television and radio programs, boycotting entire news organisations, that uh, Boris Johnson, she said, was uh, you know as a former journalist terribly conscious of the important role that the media had played in the coronavirus pandemic and uh, and certainly reset that relationship. So you're going to have a different kind of messaging. And, uh, and I think even, say, where policies are concerned, you've had a good example of it uh, this week, where they announced this so-called new industrial, uh, green industrial revolution. And this is, uh, you know, one of the uh, the, the initiatives is that they're going to stop the sale of petrol and diesel cars uh, in 2030, and that's moving that forward. But they're also going to, uh, you know, increase all kinds of uh, different forms of sustainable energy, and they're going to uh, retrofit homes and all the rest. So this was presented not so much as a, a kind of an environmentalist exercise, but it was presented as being a job creation exercise for the so-called Red Wall of those constituencies in the north of England and the Midlands that used to vote Labour and that went for the Conservatives in December. And so it's being, so I think what you're going to see is this sort of double messaging where each policy will be presented as being a win for those constituencies, but also as a reassurance for traditional or more moderate voters uh, who might have wavered in their support of the Conservatives over the last year or so since Brexit, and uh, particularly, and, and so that you, you'll find uh, a more sophisticated kind of messaging. I think where policies are concerned, some of uh, Dominic Cummings's, uh, you know, more outlandish uh, ideas, the, uh, his creation of a, a kind of an equivalent to a U.S. military innovation center, uh, essentially choosing uh, technological winners and creating a huge trillion-dollar tech company with state money. I think that uh, you'll probably see a lot of that scale back. Some of his pet projects will probably scale back. I think the other thing that you will probably see a change in is 
uh, that you won't see the government wading into culture wars quite as much. I think that you'll see Boris Johnson uh, speaking uh, about these things when he wants to, but I don't think that they're going to go picking fights over uh, issues like singing Land of Hope and Glory at the end of the proms or trans rights or whatever uh, that some of uh, some of the more hardline figures in the Conservative Party would like to see. So I think you'll see a change there. And what about Brexit in particular? Dennis, as we know, time is running out in the talks um, on how the EU and UK will manage their, their future relations. Does Dominic Cummings' departure make it more or less likely that a deal can be done? I think it's difficult to say exactly. I mean, I, he wasn't actually really directly involved in uh, the negotiations in a really detailed way over the past while, although he was certainly an important figure in any uh, major decisions that were being made about where you go. And so if, for example, Boris Johnson decided to go for a no-deal option, then Dominic Cummings would have been one of the people involved in that decision. I think uh, in terms of how the actual final days of the negotiations go, it probably isn't going to make uh, a huge amount of difference, uh, except insofar as perhaps Boris Johnson might be reluctant to go into uh, a no-deal scenario without these rather tough uh, people with him in Downing Street, who would be you know who were very good at weathering storms that he was quite reluctant to weather. And so, so I think that in that sense, it might make uh, a deal more likely. I think there's a danger, though, that the European side might overinterpret the significance of the departure of the so-called vote leave uh, faction uh, from Downing Street into thinking that this is a signal that Boris Johnson wants a deal more than he did before. And I think that there is, you know, in these final days of any negotiation like this, there's, there's, there's always a danger of miscalculation on both sides. And it's a complicated procedure on the European side because Michel Barnier is doing the negotiations on behalf of the Commission and the member states. He needs to then, once they get close to some sort of breakthrough, he needs to check in with the member states to make sure they're all on board. And many of them have strong feelings about some of these out uh, standing issues like fisheries or the so-called level playing field of guarantees of fair competition. And so I think that uh, there's always a danger of a miscalculation, but I'd have to say that right now it does look as if both sides want to get a deal. I think both sides can see the broad landing uh, spot for a deal uh, you know, on, on most of the outstanding issues. And so if something goes wrong. If they don't get a deal, it'll be because something has gone wrong in these final days, rather than because uh, either side has made up its mind that it really doesn't want to go there. Might there also be a danger that Cummings' departure sets the bar a bit higher for Boris Johnson in the talks? Might he find it more difficult to sell a deal without Dominic Cummings in his corner, if you like? I think uh, maybe not, because uh, I think certainly, uh, you know, one of the one of the the curiosities in a way about Boris Johnson is that although he's somebody who's pretty ideologically malleable, he nonetheless has uh, you know become quite uh, committed and hardline on the whole business of Brexit. And so he uh, likes to tell people uh, around him and Downing Street that he's the most uh, hardline figure in the building uh, on all of this. 
I think, though, that uh, that where the Conservative MPs are concerned, he may not have too much to worry about because uh, there's an awful lot of relief among Conservative MPs that Dominic Cummings is gone and that a new regime uh, or a new broom is entering Downing Street because he treated them with complete contempt. He was very open about his contempt for them. And they felt that uh, you know they weren't being heard, that the government was making the wrong decisions, getting into trouble, uh, having to make U-turns, and that actually some of these problems wouldn't have arisen if the lines of communication were more open. Many of them also feel as if the nation has been deprived of their talents as ministers uh, for far too long. And the prospect of a cabinet reshuffle in the coming weeks could also concentrate their minds and their, the feeling that they may be getting a, about to get a call from Downing Street and they wouldn't necessarily want to mess that up by voting against uh, a deal. And so I think that the level of resistance to uh, doing a deal would be quite low. I think it, it, to some extent it depends on, on the nature of it. I think, oddly enough, although the level playing field, fair competition rules are more important to the economy of the United Kingdom, fisheries... Uh, which accounts for a very small part of the economy, is actually more uh, politically potent and dangerous. And so if uh, the deal can be presented as including a big win for Britain on fisheries, I think that will, uh, will in a way, dampen down some of the emotional response of hard Brexiteers to it. And so I think that if Boris Johnson does a deal, that it will get through and it will get through on Conservative votes. I don't think he'll actually need the support of Labour, but I do think that Labour is probably quite likely to vote for the deal as well. Now, just before we move on to something else, Dennis, I don't want to make the entire discussion about Dominic Cummings, but I, I presume this is not the last we'll, we'll see of him or hear from him. Where do you think he'll he'll show up next? Well, one obvious place he might show up is if there is, as we expect there will be, an inquiry into the handling of the coronavirus epidemic. And uh, although he's tended to be reluctant to appear before, say, MPs' committees, this could be an opportunity to, um, uh, you know, for him to pop up and tell his side of the story. He has been inclined to, um, you know, to publish these long blogs after his previous uh, time, for example, in government when he was in the uh, in education with uh, Michael Gove. He then subsequently uh, made a couple of speeches and wrote these very lengthy blogs about the trouble with everybody else in the Department of Education. And so I think, you know, as somebody who knows him very well put it to me the other day. Uh, the most important thing to Dom is being right. And he doesn't really need money. He doesn't need the position. But what he does need is vindication. And so I think that uh, he's a more dangerous figure in a way than, say, someone like Lee Kane. Whatever Lee Kane does, first of all, he's likely to want to maintain his relationships with the government. And also partly, I mean, it may be that whatever line of work he goes into, it would be helpful for him to uh, to have a good, strong connection with the government. I think that's not true of Dominic Cummings. He just doesn't need all of that. So I think that Dominic Cummings could prove uh, to be at least, at the very least, an embarrassment to Boris Johnson in the future. Now, let's move to a, a different topic, Dennis. And that's the remark that Boris Johnson made this week in a conference call to Northern Tory MPs about Scottish devolution. He described it as a disaster. Was that a gaffe as I described it at the outset or was it intentional and what are the consequences either way? Well, the American journalist Michael Kinsley described a gaffe as being uh, something uh, that's true that a politician says, but they shouldn't, all, you know, it's not uh, convenient uh, or wise to actually blurt it out. In a sense, uh, from a certain point of view, what he was saying was true because uh, when Tony Blair uh, 
you know, ruled out the idea of devolution. Part of the purpose of it was to uh, somehow diminish support for uh, independence in Scotland and to a lesser extent in Wales. And one of the secondary elements was that they introduced a proportional representation voting system, which was in a way designed to make sure that there wouldn't be a majority uh, for any party, particularly for the SNP. And both of those things have worked out rather badly in that the SNP has maintained a majority. It's still uh, the most popular party. It's been in government for uh, more than a decade and uh, 13 or 14 years. And there's an election coming up in uh, Scotland next year and they're expected to win a majority. And also support for Scottish independence has been rising. And uh, there's now a consistent majority of above 50% for Scottish independence over the past few months. And so in the sense that, uh, you know, so in that narrow political sense, uh, when Boris Johnson said it's been a disaster and the worst mistake that Tony Blair ever made, he was kind of telling the truth. The problem is, of course, that devolution is very popular among Scots. And it's also, as far as people who don't want Scottish independence are concerned, the best argument against independence, saying, look, we can have devolution, we have enough control over our own affairs, but we also have this connection with the, you know, with the rest of the United Kingdom. And indeed, many of the people who are uh, you know, uh, advocating Scotland remaining in the UK, like Gordon Brown in a, an essay in uh, The New Statesman today, are saying, actually, what you need is more devolution, and that uh, you, want, you need to, in a way, have more devolution throughout the United Kingdom to make the UK more like a federal state. State. And that's actually the way to keep it together, rather than uh, suggesting that there should be none. And the other problem that uh, his remarks caused, in a way, was that uh, if they were interpreted in Scotland uh, as Boris Johnson saying, I won't give you independence, but also I might just take away your parliament as well. Why did the Prime Minister tell his MPs this week that Scottish devolution is, in his words, a disaster? Now, Johnson was subsequently grilled about this in the House of Commons yesterday, Wednesday, by the Labour leader, Keir Starmer. Uh, Johnson was speaking by video link because he's self-isolating, having come into contact with an MP who has coronavirus. How did that, how did that exchange go? Well, I think uh, Boris Johnson wasn't really able to make uh, you know much of a defence for himself in the sense that you know his line is that uh, when I said it was a disaster, what I meant uh, was that Scottish nationalism and uh, separatism that those are the disasters. What has unquestionably been a disaster is the way in which the Scottish Nationalist Party have taken and used devolution as a as a means not to improve the lives of their constituents, not to address their uh, their health concerns, not to improve uh, education. So he tried to suggest that, in fact, he didn't mean what he said. Now, Keir Starmer himself, Dennis, has had a, and is having a challenging week, in particular in connection with the issue of anti-Semitism in the Labour Party and the position of his predecessor, Jeremy Corbyn. What's been going on there? What's been going on is that Jeremy Corbyn was reinstated as a member of the Labour Party uh, on Tuesday after he had been suspended for 19 days. And he was suspended because uh, this um, uh, Equality and Human Rights Commission, which is a statutory body, 
uh, issued a report saying that uh, Labour, in its handling of anti-Semitism within the party, had broken the law and it made various recommendations. And uh, it also suggested that uh, under Jeremy Corbyn, the party had handled this very badly. Jeremy Corbyn issued a statement in response to it, uh, during the course of which he acknowledged uh, the, the problem. But he also said that uh, the scale of anti-Semitism had also been overstated by political opponents for uh, their own political ends. And so when he said this, uh, the Labour Party immediately suspended him. And uh, you know, uh, Keir Starmer condemned the remarks. But Keir Starmer said, this is a process that I as leader am not involved in, You know, the business of whether he remains a member of the Labour Party or not. Anyway, he was reinstated on Tuesday. But then the question was, does he uh, return, you know, does he get the Labour Party whip back? Because once he was suspended from the party, he lost the whip in Parliament, which meant that he wasn't sitting as a Labour MP, but as an independent. And this is a question that is up to Keir Starmer and the chief whip, Nick Brown. And so Starmer uh, announced um, Wednesday morning that he would not be restoring the whip to Jeremy Corbyn because he said that he had actually uh, you know, uh, impeded the party's work in trying to sort itself out over anti-Semitism. And this came after uh, you know, calls by uh, a number of Jewish organizations and by uh, Margaret Hodge, who's a Jewish Labour MP, uh, for uh, for uh, Corbyn to remain uh, without the whip. So anyway, so uh, so Starmer did this, and then uh, Jeremy Corbyn's allies, many of whom actually had been privately saying that Corbyn shouldn't have made his statement, uh, they then uh, you know said that you know because actually what had happened in the meantime was that he had issued a kind of a clarifying statement saying that he didn't really mean what he had said, and. And uh, they thought that once he was now back at the party, he should have the whip restored. And they accused uh, uh, Keir Starmer of uh, sowing division within the party and of uh, being vindictive. And uh, so he now finds himself at odds with this group of about uh, 30 uh, Labour MPs in the left-wing socialist campaign group, which is a significant proportion of the parliamentary party, and also important backers in the unions like uh, the Unite leader, Lem McCluskey, who's a longtime ally of Corbyn. So, so he's facing a problem, Keir Starmer, as he tries to do the two things that he promised to do at the beginning when he came in. One was to unite the party, and the other was to uh, completely rid it of any uh, whiff of anti-Semitism. So what options are open then to Keir Starmer? Because he's going to alienate one section of the party, whichever way he turns, isn't he? Yeah, I think that uh, well, now that he has made the decision about uh, removing the whip uh, or, or not restoring it, he said that he'd keep it under review. Uh, uh, the Labour Party rulebook is an extremely complicated uh, thing, and there seem to be lots of different interpretations among experts within the party as to what it means. But one is that uh, you know it it has to be the question has to come up again in six months, so that you know it's every six months you decide is that is the whip still. Uh, uh, still gone. And so uh, so it could be that within a few months, after an independent system of dealing with these complaints about anti-Semitism is set up in the new year, so that he's shown, Keir Starmer has shown that he has actually dealt with the problem in a serious way that's approved of by all these various outside organisations, that then maybe uh, if 
Jeremy Corbyn can find his way towards making uh, some a more comprehensive statement with regard to his own role in allowing uh, this problem to continue or not tackling it uh, strongly enough, then maybe you could find, uh, you know, in a few months that uh, they can resolve this. The problem, uh, in a way that the left has, is that uh, this is not really the terrain on which they want to fight Keir Starmer. And even uh, over the last few days, even after the, uh, Starmer's decision, there's a division within the left as to exactly how they should uh, you know, pursue this. Should they, you know, having said you should uh, restore the whip to him, should they just leave it there or should they keep on fighting? Should they go to war against Starmer? And many of them think that this is not uh, the right thing to do, that in fact, generally, strategically, that what they should do is to stay on side with Starmer and try to influence him and to make sure that uh, he doesn't move the party to the right. He hasn't really done much in terms of changing the economic policies from the policies that the uh, Labour campaigned on in December's election. And obviously, for many of them, people like John McDonnell, for example, it's the economic policies that matter more than anything else. And so they're, uh, what they will want, what they would wish, would prefer to be would be to, an, to be an influential group within the party that can actually influence policy under Keir Starmer. So I think that Starmer, in a way, if he if he was going to have uh, a fight with the left, this is the best possible territory from his point of view to have it, because very few on the left really want to die in a ditch uh, over the right of people to be fairly blasé about anti-Semitism. It was noticeable last night, Dennis, watching the BBC News in their coverage of this story, how they kind of framed it in the context of previous pushes by party leaders against the Labour hard left. And we saw these archive clips of Neil Kinnock and then uh, Tony Blair. Um, is that the kind of territory we're in now? From what you're saying, it kind of sounds like Keir Starmer is not really interested in that kind of fight, is he? I don't think he is. I mean, he, uh, I don't think, I mean, certainly, you know, for example, uh, at the time that this blew up a few weeks ago, there's no question but that Keir Starmer and the people around him were not looking for this fight. And they did also want to, want it to be resolved. And so they're not looking for a fight with the left. And I think also, I think that, you know, although, uh, you know, many on the left are very suspicious of Starmer, because of, uh, in a way, some of the cultural signals he has sent out. He's, uh, you know, he, he's been uh, wrapping Labour in the flag and doing all these really rather patriotic messages, sending those to the red wall seats. And he's also uh, refusing to get, you know, to fight back on any of the culture wars that Boris Johnson has been trying to start in recent months. And so while this is good politics, it's not reassuring for people on the left. Having said that, because he hasn't actually uh, really done much where economic policy is concerned, and because the coronavirus has changed everything in terms of the role of public spending, uh, you know, in the in the debate, because the Conservative government is simply spending so much money, that uh, you know, in, in a way, a, a labour the labour opposition is really talking more about exactly how and where you spend it, whether you're spending it competently, rather than actually the scale of spending, and so. So, so you know, one of the, the you know the, the key battlegrounds is already gone, and so I think that uh, for people on the left, 
many of them feel as if there is a, a chance that uh, although Starmer will present himself in a very different way from, uh, say, someone like Jeremy Corbyn, that actually on the economic policy agenda, that they don't have quite so much to fear as they would have, say, from somebody like uh, Kinnock or particularly Blair, who really did want to take the party in a different direction. Dennis, thanks for that. Well, that's all for this week. For more on these and other stories, go to irishtimes.com. Thanks for listening. Goodbye for now. 